Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. The term cognitive dissonance was coined by a psychologist from Stanford University named Leon Fetzinger in the 1950s. He was studying cults with the goal of understanding why cult members maintained their beliefs even when they encountered contrary evidence. He interviewed many members of a cult that believed the world would end in a cataclysmic flood on December the 21st, 1954. When they were obviously, when that, since that obviously didn't happen, he observed that there was a contradiction between what they believed and the reality. There was a contradiction and a discomfort, what he called a cognitive dissonance between two things they felt would be true, and yet they could not reconcile, bring synthesis to them. He found that after interviews, that those who believed that the world would end on December 21st, 1954, due to a flood, he found that the reason they could sort of continue going on, even with the fact that the world didn't end, was because they then believed that it was their allegiance to their leader that somehow preserved the world from its destruction. Human beings simply cannot live with two opposite things at once. Cognitive dissonance is the unease that occurs when we hold two inconsistent and contradictory beliefs. Sociologist Peter Berger says this, the only way, by the way, see if this is a sort of a commentary on our modern world, the only way to avoid cognitive dissonance is to avoid the carriers of dissonance, both non-human and human. Thus, individuals who hold position X will avoid reading newspaper articles that tend to support position Y. By the same token, these individuals will avoid conversation with Yus, but seek out Xs as a conversation partners. When people have a strong personal investment in a particular definition of reality, such as a strongly held religious or political positions or convictions that, direct, that relate directly to their way of life, he says they will go to great lengths to set up both behavioral and cognitive defenses. He says the human being does not handle well contradictory beliefs. And when we sense that there's contradictions in beliefs, we go to great lengths to provide defenses so that we don't come across things that naturally contradict what we choose to believe. We set up behavioral defenses, cognitive defenses. We're in a series called CORE. And in this series, we're looking at beliefs that followers of Jesus have believed for thousands of years. We looked in Ephesians 1 about our beliefs of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. This morning we're going to look into Ephesians chapter 2 and the first few verses deal with the topic of something called sin. When it comes to that word, 
Probably many in our culture have a sense of cognitive dissonance. We don't want to see ourselves as being impacted or having sin. And yet at the same time, we live in a world where unless we hide under a rock, we're confronted every day with evil, wickedness, darkness, not just out there, but in our lives as well. And so when it comes to this idea of sin, we often live with cognitive dissonance. But quite honestly as well, maybe you've been around church or you've been around religion. And that little three-letter word, sin, is often used maybe as a bat to beat people over the head. Maybe it comes across as finger-wagging. Maybe somebody wagged a finger at you at some point. It comes across as judgmental, overly simplistic. comes across as rigid, as behavioral modification. It's maybe a net mechanism that religious people have used to somehow control the world around them so that other people conform to their expected behavioral norms. And so in our world, sometimes we maybe see sin as obsolete, as outdated, as belonging to another era. It's a relic of the past. It's ancient, we're more sophisticated as we understand psychology and psychiatry and all the implications of what it means to be human. Is sin obsolete? Have we outgrown it? Especially when it comes to the finger-waving, controlling behavior, rigid and judgmental perspective with, with which it's often discussed. And so we're going to wade in to that topic this morning. We're not going to look at sort of the grand focus of what we believe about human beings and sin, but in some ways, sin presupposes what we believe about human beings. As we've done some of the other weeks, I want to actually read our statement of faith that we have here at Southridge about what we believe as human beings and sin. Again, mostly this morning, we're going to focus on sin, but we're also going to touch on human beings. Here's what it says. We believe that God created human beings in his image and designed them to have a personal relationship with himself while retaining the wonder, beauty, and value of being created in God's image. Every human being falls short of God's glory and is also guilty of sin, deserving of death, and separated from God. Without Christ, we are subject to sin's presence, power, and penalty. Only through Christ can we be redeemed and restored to a right relationship with God. We believe that God offers redemption and restoration to all who confess and repent of their sins, seeking his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. What is sin? John Stone Street advocates taking sin more seriously. He says we need, to idea that we need to recover the idea of sin. We don't talk about sin unless we're talking about desserts. And that's kind of true, right? And when we call desserts sinful, we actually mean they're awesome. Like sinful desserts are the best. They're rich. They taste awesome. But largely because we think sin is obsolete, that's often the only realm in which we use the word sin as applying it to desserts. Is sin really a thing? Maybe it's just, maybe we just need more information. 
Are our actions simply misguided? Do we need more education? Do we need to simply behave better? Do we need more discipline? Do we need to just work a little bit harder? Or maybe as someone suggests, do we just need to get rid of the religious fanatics that cause so much of the crazy violence in our world? What is sin? What do we do with it? Is it obsolete? In a sophisticated, modern, 21st century era, what do we do with sin? Is the Bible dusty? Is it finger-wagging? Is it old-fashioned? Is it outdated? Is it obsolete? Paul begins this way, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. First thing I want to talk about is this. Sin or sinfulness is a state as well as it's our stuff. Sin is both of those things. Sin is state as well as, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul says, you were dead. Now, here's the deal with being dead. One person cannot be more dead than another. Dead is not a matter of doing something. Dead is actually a matter of not being able to do anything. Deadness is a state. And so the Apostle Paul in Scripture says, yes, there is something about sin that is, that's our state. It's who we are, but it's not just our state. It's also our stuff. Notice he says, you are dead in your transgressions and your sin. Your state of deadness results in stuff of disobedience to God. Now, before we go on, I just kind of want to mention a couple things. The idea of sin in Scripture is connected with the idea of missing the mark. It was often used in, in archery for when you shot an arrow, the arrow would miss the mark. And the whole idea of sin, Paul doesn't get into this, but he actually presupposes it from Ephesians chapter 1. The idea of sin actually presupposes that human beings were made for something more grand. Listen to this. Sin does not minimize who we are as human beings, it actually maximizes who we are as human beings. Believing in sin doesn't minimize the beauty, the significance, the wonder of what it looks like to be human. It actually maximizes that by saying sin is actually missing the mark of the beauty and glory with which God created you. The truth of the matter is you were made for more. If you don't believe human beings were made for more, you probably don't need to believe in sin. But we actually have such a high view of who God created human beings to be. Human beings were made for more than who we are. I don't care who you are, you are made for more. And so sin doesn't minimize our humanity. It actually maximizes it because it presupposes that we miss something grander and greater for which we were created. You were created for a greater glory than in which you presently live. I love these couple of illustrations in the book of Judges, chapter 20, verse 16. It's sort of a, a military context. And, and here's what it says. I was talking about a group of soldiers, and some of these soldiers were extremely skilled in marksmanship and using a sling. It says this, among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, 
each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That word miss is the same word that's translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as sin. They could sling a stone at a hair and not sin. They wouldn't miss the mark. They wouldn't miss the hair. They were that accurate in slinging stones. It's crazy. Proverbs 19.2, desire without knowledge is not good. So this is, uh, the writer of Proverbs is kind of giving sort of some pithy perspectives on how life works. He says, you know, if you have a lot of passion but don't have knowledge, you're going to create a train wreck. You'll do a lot of stuff, but if you don't take the time to learn how it really works, it's not going to go. Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet, here's what he says, miss the way. It's the same word. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? They'll be off track. They won't actually accomplish what they desire. Maybe you are, enjoy cooking or baking. You put recipe ingredients together, put it in the oven or, or cook it together, whatever, and, and you taste it. And you say, like, eh, like, that just like misses the mark. It's not what I expected. That recipe sinned against me, right? It, it misses the mark of what I envisioned. It misses the glory of how I thought it would taste. Maybe you buy something online, the Amazon truck drops it off in your front porch, and you try it on, you're like, yeah, like, hello, man. Online, digitally, it just looked like this color, and like having it on my hand, it looks like that color. Or they said it was this size, but it's too small. It misses the mark. It misses the mark of your expectation of what you desired in terms of color. It misses the mark of how it's supposed to fit. It misses, it sins. That's the idea of sin. Sin is not just trivial. It's not just God's overly particular fussiness. It's not that God woke up and he's sort of all obsessive and compulsive about sin. No, it's deeper than that. Maybe I'll get into this another time, but in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third commandment of the Ten Commandments is this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Translators have had a hard time translating what it means to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And over the years, it generally has been thought of as being verbal. But if you actually compare the Hebrew used in that text to other places in the Old Testament, it's also used of a place where the name of God is carried, literally carried on the forehead of the priest. In other words, the, the priest would carry the name of God, little name of God on his forehead, and he was supposed to represent God well. And so probably that verse could better be translated kind of along these lines, you shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. You should not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, when you treat somebody unkindly, you're not carrying God's name and you're being well. When you speak negatively or you speak down to someone, when you diminish them, when filthy language comes out of your mouth, when there's thoughts going through your head of greed or lust. You're not carrying God's name well in your being. You're not bearing his name well. You're not representing him well. When you speak harshly and cruelly to someone else, when you put somebody else in your, their place, when you win the argument because you got to win, you're not carrying his name well. You're violating the third commandment. You're not bearing his name well. You're not representing his name well. Sin is, yes, it's our state, but it's also our stuff. It's the stuff that we do. Here's another way of saying it. 
We are broken, but we are also breakers. We're broken as well as we're breakers. We're broken. We're separated from God. We're dead. It's our state. It's our state of being. But we're also, all of us are also active sinners. We are breakers of God's law. We're breakers of his righteousness. We're breakers of his goodness. We're breakers of his kindness. We can also say, we are sinners because we sin, but we also sin because we're sinners. You're not just a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. This stuff comes out of your state. This breaking comes out of you being broken. You're sep- we're separate. There's something wrong with us. And God's diagnosis is we're separated from him. One last thing, and this kind of helps me to think in practical ways about how to, just perspective, and you may wrestle with this. You are not, not as bad as you can be. You're not as bad as you can be. Like right now, we're sitting in an auditorium, you're watching online, whatever, and, and realistically, there's probably like horrific levels of evil being perpetrated at this very moment by millions of people across the planet. You're not as bad as you could be. You could be a whole lot more mean and nastier than you could be. I could be. Uh, We control our behavior pretty well. Some people control it less well. You're not as bad as you can be, but you are. You are as bad off as you can be. You're not as bad as you can be, but you are as bad off as you can be. You are dead in your sin. You're non-responsive to God. We're separated from him. And you're as separated as far as you possibly can. You don't, you're not as bad behavioral as you could be, but you are as bad off as you can be. You are completely separated from God. If you've violated, if you've broken one aspect of his love and kindness, you're as bad off as you can be. Well, how do we handle that? Well, at the very least, that should make us, as followers of Jesus, the most humble people you can find on planet Earth. It should make us humble to realize that anything in us that's a good, that the, the largest thing that we have is being rescued by God. Our tone, our demeanor, the way that we relate to others, in the body of Christ, in the outside world, our disposition, our tone, our demeanor should be one of humility. Because we recognize that every single person on planet earth is in the state of being dead, separated from God. We may have varying levels of stuff. We may have varying levels of which we break his commands. But every one of us is in a state of being dead. Every one of us is in a state of being broken. Every one of us is as bad off as we possibly can be.
And it's only by God's grace and mercy that any of us are rescued. It also means this. Listen to this, friends. The gospel is not supplemental. The gospel is essential. The gospel is not a sort of rider on some insurance policy that, hey, by the way, this is covered in case you need it. The gospel is not supplemental. It's not simply a pill that you take to supplement the other stuff that you have. The gospel is not supplemental. The gospel is essential. You can give any kind of medication that you want to somebody who's dead, and they're dead. It's a state of being. They need to be rescued from their state of being. And so the church, far from being moralistic, finger-wagging, self-righteous, in humility, we say every person, every person desperately needs the grace of God. It's essential to every life. Secondly, not only is sin both our stuff and our state, sin is both out there and in here. It's out there and in here. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. The idea of live there is walk. That's the actual word. The Bible often uses walk as sort of the way that we do life. In which you used to walk or live when you followed the ways of this, take notice, of this world. So that's one influence. There's an influence of the world. We'll talk about that in a second. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. There's something else. So there's the world. There's a ruler. The spirit, ruler and spirit kind of go together. They're synonymous. The spirit who is now at work in this word disobedience. So, so first of all, we have two things so far. And then we'll go back there. But the next verse, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So there's, this, there's the world that's an influence. There's the spirit or ruler of the air that's at work. That's an influence. Then also, Paul says there's something that's called our flesh that's an influence. Just to take a moment to just kind of work through them. When it says the, way, the ways of the world, the word that Paul actually uses is the age of the world. He uses that word age. Uh, he used it already in verse 21 of Ephesians 1. He says, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Same word. The age of this world, the ways of the world. He uses it again in verse 7. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of the grace. So Paul uses the word age of the world or ways of the world to say, this is kind of the air that the world breathes. This is how we function. This is how we operate. Now, one of the things that's challenging about this is it's hard to recognize the air when you're naturally breathing it. We'll come back to that. And then he says there's spiritual forces at work as well. In ancient times, the term air often referred to the spiritual realm of angels and demons. Thus, the prince of the power of the air is the person of Satan. 
Klein Snodgrass says this, the ancient world viewed the air between the earth and heaven as a domain of the spirits. The ruler has control of this godless domain, the atmosphere, and instead of living in accord with God's domain, people choose a tyrant instead of the God who created them. So the idea of the air was sort of the, the place of the demonic world that was below the ultimate rule of God in the heavens. And so it's, it's a recognition that it's not just information. It's not just behavior, but there's, there's a spiritual influence that's happening. Your life is not just your decisions. You're actually being pulled. You're being nudged. There's a spirit that's at work. Now, our culture is probably not overly comfortable using that language. So the language we often choose to substitute is the word energy. And so we often use that language in our culture. Hey, there's, it's positive energy. That's neg- Like, what's that? Why, why do we use the word energy? Because we sense there's something bigger than just the raw decisions that I'm making. There's some kind of reality, so we call it energy. The Bible is much more uh, uh, clear about that. And so it says, yes, there's, there's a spiritual power at work. If you want to call it energy, that's fine. But this has a personal nature to it. It's not just raw energy. There's, there are spiritual forces at work. You're not just you. You're not just your decisions. You don't simply make your decisions in a vacuum of everything else. There's actually a spiritual nudge. You're in a spiritual tug of war where you're being pulled. And then he says, flesh. He says, all of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Flesh refers to that which leaves God out of the picture. It's left to our own devices. Without God, desires are Lord and they're in control. Cravings and desires refer to legitimate human needs that are distorted, subverted, and heightened to produce an irrational self-centeredness. So, so our flesh isn't necessarily like physical material part of us, but, but flesh is sort of the, the rawness of who we are and leaving God out of the equation. It's sort of just following after our or almost our animalistic instincts, the rawness of who we are, minus any kind of influence from God. It's our base instincts. It's our passion to just get even, to make somebody else pay. It's our passion to just binge and escape. It's our passion to somehow get something else to give us a sense of a high. It's our desires, our thoughts. It comes from our flesh. We won't take time to go through all of these, but maybe this afternoon you want to think through maybe four things and how they relate to the influence of the ages of the world, the ways of the world, the spirit, the ruler of the air, and the desires of our flesh. Think, think of these four things in each of those grids. Money, Sex, power, and identity. Think of those four things 
What does the world say about money and sex? The age of the world is you've worked for what you get. Get as much as you can. Use stuff to give meaning to your life. Get a leg up on other people. Make sure you're comfortable with your needs first. And if you can spare a little bit of change, contribute to some charitable organization to feel good about yourself. Not in response as a worship to God, but so that you can feel yourself as a, you're a good, worthy human being because you contribute charitably to other people. That's sort of the age of the world. Yeah, of course we give because that's what nice, good, breathing human beings should do. But it's about what I get. What about sexuality? As long as there's consent, you're good to go. Free reign. As long as it's consensual, give license to following your passions. What about sex, power, and identity through the lens of the ruler of the air or flesh, our own desires and thoughts? Scripture makes it clear that sexuality is not just a physical act. It's actually something that involves our souls. It involves our beings. It's not just physically pleasurable, but it's some kind of spiritual experience that happens that violates your being unless it's acted in the context of a covenant in marriage between male and female. And so scripture's perspective of sexuality isn't simply regressive. Instead, it's saying sexuality is connected soul deep to your being. It's connected to the flourishing of who you are. But there's a pull on that. Not just in your mind, but in the spiritual realm, there's a pull for destructiveness to your soul. There's a pull for destructiveness to your being. It's not just your decisions. It's not just your attitudes. There's a spiritual power. There's a spiritual pull literally at work in your life. What about when it comes to the flesh? Gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Following its desires and thoughts. Man, that's sort of the ways. That's the age of the world. That's what we champion. Follow your heart. Follow your gut. Do what you want. Be authentic to the most basic instincts that you have. That's the message that's sent to us from the world about our flesh. Forget self-limitation. Self-limitation, don't be constricted by self-limitation. Don't be constricted by pulling back on what you want. Give it your all. Give yourself, what if that diagnosis is actually wrong? See, Paul is saying that now you're following the desires and thoughts of your flesh is actually destructive to who you are as a human being. Remember what we said. We said the idea of sin with humanity, it doesn't minimize humanity. 
It maximizes it. It says, you are made for more. You're more than the compilation of your desires. You're more than the compilation of your passions. You're more than the compilation of what you have to have right now. You're more than the compilation of what the world says that you are. You're made for more. You're made for the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short. What do we fall short of? The glory of God. Not that we fall short of God's moralistic roles. Not that we fall short of God's obsessive, particularistic standards. No, you fall short of God's glory. I fall short of God's glory. You were made for more. I was made for more. Well, that's a lot of bad news. And then Paul says this, sin is powerful, but it's not all powerful. It's your state. And there's a lot of stuff that comes from living in your state. You're broken. And there's a lot of breaking that comes in your life. But sin is powerful, but it's not all powerful. In verses four and five, Paul says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And some people have called this the biggest but in the Bible. But, but because of his great love for us, God. God interrupts our state. God brings forgiveness to our stuff. God heals our brokenness. God forgives are breaking. We'll get into these verses next week, but in verse six, six and seven, it says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Communion is a time where we take a, take a wafer that represents broken bread. We take a cup of juice, grape juice, that represents the shed blood of Jesus. I realize how awkward that feels. I realize how unsophisticated that sounds. In the 21st century modern era, particularly central New Jersey region, it nearly sounds cannibalistic. Sounds obsolete. Like, are you kidding me? But scripture gives us such a deep diagnosis 
of what's wrong with us. And as hard as we try through education, and education's awesome. As hard as we try through information, and information and technology are awesome. As hard as we try, it's not the diagnosis for our state and our stuff. It's not. But God, who is rich in mercy, comes to us in the person of Jesus. And at the crucifixion on the cross, he takes both our state and our stuff, both our brokenness and our breaking. He takes that on himself. He takes the curse of us not carrying the name of God well. Jesus comes, lives a sinless life. He carries God's name well. He bears his name well. He never misuses God's name. He carries it well. And he offers forgiveness to the likes of us who misuse who violate our humanity, who do not carry the name of the creator well in our beings. And communion is a time when we reflect and say thank you for but God, that he gave us his son. So I'll dismiss us in sections and I invite you to come and take a wafer, a cup of juice. There's sections around the auditorium, two in the balcony. It's not important for you to be a member here at Southridge. What we do ask is that you belong to Jesus, that you've actually received the gift of his grace and cleansing you of your stuff and your breaking, that you've been made alive in Christ. And as you walk back to your seats. May those two words be loud in your ears, but God. You're dead in your sin. It's not obsolete. It's a real deal. You're dead. But God, who is rich in mercy. If you're not familiar with communion and you just want to chill out and stay seated during this time, feel free to do that. Just relax, focus on the cross behind me, pray, whatever you want to do. Just don't feel an obligation to participate, but this is for those of us who have received the gift of God's grace. Why don't we have this section over here, the far section, this section here, if you could go bring the cup of juice and wafers back to your seat, back and you can go. Then we'll take them together uh, when we all have them.
the other sections can go. As you're seated, feel free just to, excuse me, open your heart in confession to God, to be honest with him about your falling short of his glory. Matthew records these words in Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And when we took communion first service, it just was for some reason, we're just like particularly cognizant of the sound of chewing in our congregation. And so as we do this, let's take it together. And it's okay to chuckle a little bit as you hear the sounds of a congregation together, chewing, eating, ingesting the truth of the gospel. Let's eat of the gospel together. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. It's closer time. We're going to stand and sing about the blood that washes us, that cleanses us, that forgives our missing the mark. Your blood 
speaks a better word and all the empty claims afford upon this earth speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense Jesus it's your blood your blood speaks a better word all the empty claims afford upon this earth speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense Jesus it's your blood what can I wash away my sin what can I Your cross testifies in grace as of the Father's heart to make a way for us. Now boldly we approach, not earthly confidence. It's only by your blood. Yeah. What can wash away? God, may we not be a finger-wagging, judgmental, moralistic, self-righteous group of people. May we be humble. 
May we understand the depths of our sin. And may we delight in the far deeper depths of your grace. Increase our joy. Increase our delight. Increase our love. Increase our mercy and kindness to others because your grace has run deep toward us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. Our prayer team is down to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless. Have a wonderful and beautiful fall day.